0: Welcome to the audio podcast of the Sermons from First Reformed Church in Edgerton, Minnesota. For more information on First Reformed, go to edgertonfrc.org or our Facebook page. There's a phrase that I'm guessing that each and every one of us has used at some point. Home sweet home. Now you might have used it after a long vacation and you were just glad to be home. Perhaps you use that phrase regularly when you get home from a hard day of work and you're excited to get cleaned up and sit in your favorite chair with your feet up. Maybe you have uttered those words in describing your place of origin to someone when you were away from home. Maybe you made that comment after a long time away from where you were raised and you moved back there. Now, when I did a mental inventory of times that I can remember using that phrase, home sweet home, it's been when I've returned from living a long ways from where I grew up. Now, while I have always lived in places that generally look and feel like where I was reared, there was always just something about going back to where things were familiar, going back to home. Now, I also recall using the phrase when I'd been away from home for a while, particularly I can remember coming back from a two-week long seminary intensive in Holland, Michigan back in 2011. I was away from my, my wife and family for two whole weeks, and honestly, it felt like much longer. I think I was in Hebrew at that time. We'll blame Hebrew class, okay? But when I got back, I was greeted by my wife and by Carly, and in addition to saying the words, home sweet home, I'm pretty sure I got to the top of the steps and kissed the floor. Now, that's overly dramatic, I understand this, but I'm guessing you can relate. There truly is no place like home. The Wizard of Oz was right. There's just no place like home. As we've been making our way through these final chapters of the book of Genesis, we've been following the story of Jacob's family, and we have seen them relocate from the land of well, Abraham and Isaac, there, uh, where they sojourned, what was going to be the promised land. And while this was home sweet home for Jacob and his family, they didn't want to leave that. It was the, God, the land that God had told their family that they would take possession of, right? Why would they want to leave? It was the promised land. But yet, we've seen that God has been leading his people away from the land of promise for a purpose, in order to rescue them from this famine. But as we clearly see in our passage for today, Jacob knows that while Egypt may save his family, it's not their home. Their home is the land that God has promised to them. That is where he and his people belong. So as we arrive in Genesis 47, we come to a rather interesting part of this story. There are really three things going on in this chapter, and so those are going to act as our three points for today. So let's line them out quick, and then we will get into the text. The first part of the chapter shows the family of Jacob settling in the land of Goshen in Egypt. Now, as you remember when, from when we left off last week, Joseph was very deliberate in suggesting where his family would settle He knew that they were to be set apart for God, and so he prepared his brothers to tell Pharaoh that they were shepherds and to also let them know that the Egyptians didn't like shepherds, and so they would be set apart in Goshen. Well, in the first section of this passage today, we see this playing out just as Joseph had planned. In the second part of this chapter, we find Joseph acting as a shrewd politician. The people of Egypt are running out of money, but they're still in need of food. And Joseph has them sell their livestock uh, for food one year and, and then exchange their land for food the next year and they become slaves. Well, even though the grain is Egyptian grain, the people are made to pay the price for the food and this causes them to lose their livestock and lose their land. Then in the final section of this passage, we find that Jacob's family gains possession, gains possessions in the land. This, this acts as a contrast to what I just talked about with the Egyptians. The Egyptians are losing land in Egypt. The Israelites are being blessed in Egypt. But still, Jacob remembers that this is not their home. This is not home sweet home. He hopes for the promise of God for his people. And then he acts in such a way that he shows that he trusts that God is actually going to keep that promise. So there's a lot going on here. But none of it is too terribly detailed, and so we're going to be working in these three big ideas today and considering the big picture of the chapter. And so when we pick up the story here in verse 1, we find the continuing of Joseph's plotting regarding his family ending up in the land of Goshen. Now in the previous chapter, we saw Joseph give instructions about how he was going to guarantee their dwelling in that land. Now this was important because they not only needed to be set apart from the Egyptians because they didn't want to intermix with the pagan uh, culture of Egypt. But in the midst of this famine, they needed land that would provide for their livestock. Remember, they brought it all the way from Canaan. That's really important. Bringing that livestock all that way and then not having anything for them to eat is an issue. And so we see this playing out just as Joseph had planned. We see that he picks five men to represent his family before Pharaoh. And All of this goes down just as he had plotted out. And notice here, they tell him that they have come to sojourn in the land. And this is true because they know that God has given them another land. But there's something else going on here. Notice that they say sojourn to Pharaoh. They're making sure that Pharaoh knows that they aren't looking to make this their permanent home. Hey, we're just going to hang out in Goshen for a while. Let's wait till this famine is done. We're not here to take over. We're moving in, but we aren't going to stay. We're not squatting here, Pharaoh. We're just sojourning. And so Pharaoh finds this whole situation to be agreeable. He clearly thinks highly of Joseph, so he trusts them. And we have seen his trust of Joseph before. And Joseph has been in a significant position of power with Pharaoh ever since he interpreted those dreams about the famine and then shared his plans for how they were going to make it through the famine. You get why Pharaoh is so trusting. So the family of Jacob is not only allowed to dwell in Goshen, which Pharaoh calls the best of the land, but he also gives them control over the livestock of Pharaoh. And as part of this, Joseph brings his father before Pharaoh. So this is an interesting interaction here as they're heading into Goshen. Pharaoh inquires how old Jacob is. I mean, clearly he's old. Is that a question you really ask somebody? Good thing he wasn't a lady. She might have been offended, right? You don't don't ask people how old they are, especially when you're 130. But he answers this way, that his days of sojourning have been 130 years. Now, once again, that word is interesting. It's chosen on purpose, sojourning. The idea of a sojourn implies that not only has he not received the promised blessing of God of the land... But it also implies that his whole life, his living on this earth, is is a temporary dwelling place. Jacob is hoping for something greater. He has a hope beyond the earthly. Jacob has a hope beyond Canaan. As it says in Hebrews chapter 11 about the heroes of the faith, they look to the city whose designer and builder is God Jacob has a greater hope beyond this life, beyond Canaan, beyond the promised land. He understands that there is more. But that's not the only interesting part about this interaction. We read here that Jacob is the one is, uh, who is the one, who is blessing Pharaoh, and we're going to see more about that here in just a minute. Jacob is the one that's in the line to the promised one. He's in the line to the Messiah. He has been blessed, but yet what does Jacob say to describe his life? He says his days of his life have been few, and they've been evil. He's old, 130 years old. He hasn't had just a few days. He's had had himself a lot of days. But the point here is that he does not relish in those years. They have been difficult. And we know from making our way through Genesis, the life of Jacob has been difficult. He spent time on the run from his brother. He was deceived by his father-in-law and had to labor additional time to marry Rachel. The job that he had been promised, or the, the marriage that he had been promised when he originally took the job, right, but he had to work extra, and then Jacob was also injured in his wrestling match with God. That, remember when he was on his way to meet his brother Esau? He was injured in that wrestling match with God, and he's had a limp his entire life. And now he's spent the last 26 years grieving over a son that he was told was dead. I guess he's had quite a hard life. And we can understand why he says that his years have been few and evil. And so he contrasts his life with Abraham and Isaac. And while we know that they had their struggles, they had difficulties, honestly, the struggles of Jacob have been much more difficult. As we close up this section of the approval of the family of Jacob moving into the land of Goshen, we have to take a moment to address perhaps the most surprising part of this passage. Notice what what Jacob does here. He blesses Pharaoh. Now, from our human perspective, we think this should be the other way around, right? The people of Jacob are getting the best land for their livestock, even though they're outsiders. Shouldn't Jacob come in, bow down, kiss the ring of Pharaoh, and receive a blessing from Pharaoh? Isn't that how it should be? But the exact opposite happens. And this is an important reminder for us of the blessing that is on the life of Jacob. God has blessed the line of Abraham, the line of Isaac, the line of, and now of Jacob. They're unique. And they are a continuation of the promise that goes all the way back to Genesis 3. How could a, a nomadic dude with a limp who's reliant on the Egyptians for food for the survival of his family... Be the one who blesses the most powerful man in the world. How does this happen? Well, it's because he is the anointed one of God. That's why. Jacob is the anointed of God. He is the one who is in the line to the Messiah. He is of the promised line. He is blessed to be the one who through all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so we see here in this passage a prefiguring of Christ in this moment, right? Right? the one through whom the Messiah will one day come and bless people of every tribe, tongue, and nation, he is even able to bless the most powerful man in the world, the Egyptian Pharaoh. It's prefiguring the blessing of Christ upon his people. And then after blessing Pharaoh, we read that they settled into the land, and then there's a bit of a turn in the story. And we see some Seriously interesting activity from Joseph here. Now, we understand as we read this that what Joseph is doing here is legitimate. It's legal. The people need to pay for the food. We'll talk about that here in just a second. But we can't deny that what Joseph is doing here is a little bit underhanded, right? Now, it's a lot of words in this section to tell what he did, so I'm going to try and summarize it as best as possible to get the big idea before we look at a few things. Essentially... Joseph has it set up that his family takes care of the livestock in the land of Egypt. Remember, keeping of livestock is considered to be an abomination for the Egyptians. And so they're being shepherds. not only means that they're isolated to a specific section of the land, but they also are going to be the people who look after the livestock of Pharaoh. Hey, keeping livestock is an abomination to us Egyptians. We have a whole bunch of people who don't care. Let's slide my livestock over there. You can take care of them well during the famine the people run out of money for food now we don't know why this is the case but we can surely speculate why they run out of money the famine has probably caused a recession of some kind right and people don't have as much money to work with but also you would have to guess that food is probably going for a pretty premium price right now right so the people need to pay for the food that makes sense it isn't free to produce food it isn't free to harvest food now we don't know how the system how the economics worked here in banking up the food in egypt but we have to know that it isn't an easy endeavor for them to bank all this food up somebody had to invest in in planting all this food and bringing in this food and having this food so the people had to pay it wasn't free food Well, the food has run out uh, for different people, but also their money has run out, and so they need more food, but they have no money to buy it. So first, they pay with their livestock. Well, guess who takes care of the livestock? Remember what I said. All this livestock is going to be taken care of by the Hebrews, by Jacob's family. Well, guess who benefits? The family of Jacob. Jacob. There they are over in Goshen. Now, Pharaoh must be happy because it becomes his possession. These are Pharaoh's livestock. But it's also mixed in with the livestock of the family of Jacob. And certainly, they're compensated for their labor. This is extra work. I'm sure sure they're getting something out of this. Well, then the next year, they don't have livestock to pay with, as we read. And now Pharaoh is the proud owner of a whole bunch of land, and he has a whole bunch of slaves. Essentially, the power of the Pharaoh here is being expanded exponentially. So how could Pharaoh not be excited about this increase and centralization of his power? Now, this is pretty savvy on the part of Joseph. Pharaoh isn't likely going to question how his family is growing and prospering in the land of Goshen if Pharaoh is growing in power and in possession at the same time, right? Well, those, that family of Joseph over there is getting a lot of extra livestock and they're getting a lot, of, a lot of money and some stuff, but boy, do I have a lot of power here, right? He's not caring. He's not noticing. So now the question in all this that comes into play is why is this even brought up? Why is this story told to us in Genesis? While it's fair that the people pay for food, this whole thing kind of paints Joseph in a bit of a negative light, Right? We've seen nothing but positive things from Joseph. And the reason he's sort of seen in a negative light is because we don't like a politician that would take advantage of a situation like this. We would not like this if this was happening to us. We would be outraged. So why is it that this is even brought up for us here in Genesis 47? Well, as we move on to the final section of the story, and for our final point for today, we find out what I alluded to earlier. The people of Israel gain possessions... While they are in the land. So, what we see as we dig in here is a contrast. The people of Egypt are losing their possessions, but what is happening to the people of God? They're gaining possessions. God is keeping his promise to make Israel a great nation, even though they are not in the land of the promise. If you were reading this story for the first time and wondering how this could possibly happen when they're in Egypt, this here answers your question. So imagine for a second that you're the original audience of Genesis. You're hearing these stories, and you know that your people were enslaved in Egypt. How, mom, dad, grandpa, whoever, grandma, who's ever telling the story here, how did we become a great nation in Egypt? How do we have all these livestock? How do we have all these possessions? Well, we were were slaves in Egypt. Well, this lets us know the answer. God used Joseph's position to put the people who were the subject of Pharaoh to gain possessions, even though they were shepherds and an abomination to the people of Egypt. They prospered in Egypt while the people of Egypt diminished. And notice that the focus here is on Jacob. His family is being fruitful, and they are multiplying. Now, that's a command... For the people of God that we have heard multiple times in Genesis, at creation, they were told to be fruitful and multiply. We were reminded of this command after the flood. And then the people were being punished at Babel when they weren't filling the earth, right? That was the big issue there. They weren't going out and filling the earth. They weren't being fruitful and multiplying. But now we see that even though they're not in the land, even though it seems as though they're away from the promises of God, they're being faithful to be fruitful and multiplying just as God had command. We see here that they are obeying the command of God, and he is blessing them. And we read here an interesting fact about Jacob as this information is being shared about his family as the focus comes back to Jacob here. Now, he's been talking about dying for quite a while now. And so we might expect here, if we were reading the story, that he might be dying relatively soon after being reunited with his son Joseph. Isn't that how we kind of imagine the story would go? He gets back together with his son Joseph. He cries, now I can die in peace. And soon thereafter, he dies. He closes his eyes. Oh, what a happy ending of the story. But instead, we read that he lived 17 years. God blesses him still even more. And we read that his total years come to a total of 147. But as the passage closes up, we see Jacob is getting near to his death, and he makes a hopeful request as his last days draw near. Now, things have been good for 17 years in Goshen, but Jacob knows that Egypt is not the home of the people of God. And he doesn't want it to be his final resting place either. You see, Jacob believes God. And he trusts that he will take them out of the land of Goshen. And they will possess the promised land. And so he makes Joseph make a promise. This is a big deal. And so we see that he has Joseph put his hand under his thigh. Now if you remember back to Genesis 24, Abraham used this same thing. He has them... has. Isaac put his hand under his thigh as a promise. And the idea here, if you'll remember, with putting your hand under the thigh is that this was the source for them of procreative power. And so the idea was that this was an oath going forward to even the future generations. It was a vow that can't be broken Even after the one who's making this vow dies, it still can't be broken. It's a promise that must be kept even by the coming generations. And so we see that he wants Joseph to deal kindly with him. He wants him to keep this promise. So what does he desire that his bones will not lie in Egypt. He wants them to go back to that plot of land that was bought to bury Sarah so many chapters back in Genesis. Now they've left the land, the land that God has promised. They have brought all their possessions with them into Egypt. Everything is with them. But there is still one piece of land that they have ownership of in the promised land. That cave in Machpelah. Back then it showed a belief in Abraham that God would give them that land and it also showed that they were trusting in God for something more than this life. And now Jacob has the same hope that his grandfather Abraham had. And so Joseph makes this promise to his father, not just for himself, but for the generations that are going to come after. They will take his bones and put them with his father's. And Joseph swears this oath and he bows himself, and then Jacob bows himself on the head of the bed. Now, this is not Jacob bowing his head for the last time. We don't read about the death of Jacob until chapter 48. But this is a sign, when he bows his head on the bed, that Jacob is thankful to God for the faithfulness of God. And it shows that he has a trust that this final wish will be fulfilled. And so it's with this final wish of Jacob that we're left hanging as we head into chapter 48 next week. But what application can you and I find from this latest, latest story in the lives of Jacob and Joseph that we can take into the world in the coming week and beyond? And so as we think about this, this passage, this chapter of Genesis, I want us to dwell on the phrase that Jacob just used as he made the request of Joseph. Jacob asked him to deal kindly With him. He made the request that his bones would end up in the promised land one day, and he wanted Joseph to grant this request for him. And then Joseph made this oath to his father, and then Jacob trusted that the promise would, in fact, be kept. As you and I consider the promises of God that have been made to us, we know, we know that God has, in fact, dealt kindly with you and I in Jesus Christ. We were in rebellion against God in our sin and unbelief, and yet He dealt kindly with us by sending Jesus to suffer and die in our very own flesh and rise again from the dead to secure eternal life for us because we're His people. And we have proof that God has dealt kindly with us in the fact that we have faith in Christ Because you and I would not believe without the gift of the Holy Spirit that now is indwelling us. And we also have another important sign, and it is also a seal of the truth that God has dealt kindly with us in Christ. And it's laid out in front of us this morning. Just as Joseph placed his hand under Jacob's thigh, and it was a sign of an unbreakable promise there in Genesis 47, you and I have a covenant sign here in the Lord's Supper. We're reminded of God's covenant faithfulness to His people. This is the covenant meal of the new covenant in Christ's blood. And through the word that is proclaimed and the work of the Holy Spirit in us, God is at work in you and I to confirm that we are His people. A forgiven people that He will bring up from their graves. And so as we take this meal this morning... And as we step out into the world this week, may you and I be reminded that God has dealt kindly with us and we are his covenant people. May we trust as Jacob did in the faithfulness of our God. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Edgerton First Reformed. For more information on First Reformed, navigate to our website edgertonfrc.org or our Facebook page.